I thought I'd start the talk tonight um, with a few moments of just reflection. So if you want to just close your eyes for a moment. And the exercise is just to reflect a little bit on the state of mind that you imagine insight arising within. You know, if you had to conjure up some kind of image or idea, felt sense of what it would feel like in that moment just before enlightenment. How do you picture it? Is there a sense maybe of deep tranquility? Just the most amazing calm that you've ever felt? Or maybe amazing bliss, you know, a sense of really uh, communing with the divine, being in some kind of heaven realm? So you can open your eyes again, but just kind of noticing, taking note, you know, what your idea is about, you know, where is the deep transformation going to come about? What kind of state is it going to come out of? And the truth is that the path to insight, the place that enlightenment, a really deep transformation actually arises out of, is one of profound balance which is one of the reasons that we really highlight the principle of equanimity on this retreat. That's why we keep coming back to that principle, equanimity kind of being the pinnacle, the height of balance, stability of mind. So tranquility, bliss, many other wonderful qualities of mind are part of the equation, part of what goes into the formula that gives rise to wisdom and insight. But the guiding principle is really this one of balance, stability, what the Buddha called not falling into extremes. So I want to talk tonight about the recipe for insight, which the Buddha was so kind as to give us. You know, he was not uh, a stingy host. You know, sometimes you go to a potluck or a dinner and there's some fabulous dish you'd like to take the recipe home for, (laughs) but it's kind of the secret recipe, the special recipe. Uh, so you can't get it. But the Buddha wasn't like that. He was very generous. He was very kind to us. And so he, he gave us the recipe for insight, for awakening. And the generations of yogis, you know, over the centuries that have practiced like this, you know, they were so kind as to preserve it for us and to pass it on to us. So there's this great uh, debt that we owe to them for being so kind to us. And it's embodied in a teaching that we call the seven factors of enlightenment which can also be thought of as the elements of wisdom or just simply the ingredients of wisdom, of awakening, of insight. And some of you here may be wondering, well, you know, how does insight arise? You know, we come here to the Insight Meditation Society. That's uh, purportedly our goal here is insight. And you come, you know, into the interviews and the groups asking about this in various ways, you know, so we've heard this from you, you know, each in your own way, you know, whether you think of it in those terms or not, you have this question, you know, how am I going to get there? How does this work? Is it going to work? 
So it's by cultivating these seven factors of enlightenment. There's mindfulness, sati, in the Pali term. There's investigation, or investigation of dhammas, dhamma-vichaya. There's energy, virya. There's joy, piti. There's calm, pasadi. There's concentration, samadhi. And there's this equanimity, upekka. So these are the ingredients for insight. And we like to at least mention the Pali terms um, because many of them are just so problematic to translate. The, the Pali language is really interesting. It's, it's the language that the, the ancient teachings have come down to us and for um, at least 1,500 years, possibly longer. It's thought to be very close to the language that the Buddha actually uh, taught in. It's kind of a vernacular form of, of uh, Sanskrit. It's what people on the street, kind of the common people would have been speaking, or very close to it. And it also, I think, just helps us to remember that the English terms that we tend to kind of banter around in here are really approximations. They're kind of the closest that we can get with the English language to, to the original meaning of those terms. So it helps, can help a little bit so that we don't get too attached to whatever particular you know, personal connotations words like energy uh, or concentration might have for us. And all of these factors of enlightenment are uh, wonderful in and of themselves. Just the simple fact of their presence is delightful. And they're also pivotal in the development of wisdom. And they have so much potential for good, for benefit, that we speak of them in terms of enlightenment, as factors of enlightenment. So just not to be uh, daunted by that term. <laughs> you know, if you, if you hear that term, factors of enlightenment, and you have a reaction of, whoa, you know, that's not for me. You know, that's not within my grasp. It's, it's not really the sense of it. The sense is really for them to be inspiring. You know, that these are very inspiring qualities. And they're ones that are within reach of all of us. If you've gotten here, if you made it to where you are now, sitting on that cushion, this is within your reach, all of these. The Buddha used to say that he taught with an open hand. You know, he wasn't a stingy host. He didn't hold anything back as the secret teachings. He just laid it all in the line that these are the qualities that we need to cultivate. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And when these become strong and balanced, then insight just naturally arises. It's the natural product of all of these in combination. It's like when you're baking, which is something I do a lot with my daughter these days, kind of making simple things. You know, you mix together the flour and the eggs and you know, the oil, the cream, the sugar, the vanilla, and you put them in a pan and you stick them in the oven at a certain temperature and 30 minutes later, you know, it's like magic, you know, voila, you've got a cake. And it's the same with this recipe. You know, you mix together all these ingredients, you know, the mindfulness and the effort and the tranquility. And after a certain amount of time in the oven, in the pressure cooker here, unfortunately, we don't know how long, you know, voila, you've got insight. You know, it's, it's really that, just that natural and that simple and that lawful.
the Buddha said that just as in a peaked house, you know, like all the buildings we have here in New England, all of the rafters slope toward the peak, incline toward the peak, join at the peak. Even so, a yogi who cultivates and honors the seven factors of wisdom slopes towards freedom, inclines towards freedom, and tends towards freedom. So he's really saying that this practice puts us on a slippery slope to enlightenment, to freedom, to liberation, which is helpful to remember because it might not always feel like that is the particular slippery slope that we're on. (laughs) You know, it can often feel like there's uh, an awful lot of slippery muck in our minds that's leading us in quite a different direction. But the Buddha said no. He said that if we're cultivating these qualities of heart and mind, uh, if we even appreciate them and aspire to them, then we're on the right track. We're on the track to freedom. So this is really a teaching of great optimism and great hope that this is actually possible for us. And you hear us speak here a lot about the lawfulness of the arising of mental states, how everything arises due to causes and conditions and passes due to causes and conditions, you know, conditions in this very moment, conditions in the past day, the past you know, week, the past uh, year, the past lifetime, maybe many past lifetimes, you know, all of these conditions come together to produce just this moment's particular experience that's arriving right now. And also that every experience dissipates according to the same kinds of conditions. And this is the Dharma, this is the Dhamma in the sense of being the truth, the truth about how uh, human beings operate, about how our experience unfolds. And we see this all around us, too, in the external environment, in the natural world. Every plant, every animal has its own particular niche that it lives in, its own particular environment, its own particular conditions that it needs in order to live and to thrive. And we see this around the center here. Whenever I come up here, I always marvel at the woods here, which, even though they're not far away, are quite different from the forests around uh, the Washington, D.C. area where I live. It's, it's, a, you know, it's not that big of a distance in terms of the earth, but the ecosystem's quite different. So you walk it back into the woods here, and there's just that lush carpet of ferns, you know, under the firs. Uh, that's their particular niche. You know, those ferns don't grow out in the lawn. They need their particular environment. And then, you know, like over in, in the yogi garden here, there's the, all the, the wildflowers, the sun, sun-loving perennials, that they need that environment to thrive. They won't grow back in the woods. We have to cultivate those out in the sun. My husband and I uh, and my daughter, we live in a house that we bought uh, about a decade ago now before the big real estate boom. We got to see that kind of come and go. (laughs) But um, when we first bought uh, our house, it was in a neighborhood of like a lot of little small World War II era bungalows and a lot of big old Uh, mature shade trees, a lot of oaks and maples, and it was just a really nice uh, shady neighborhood. And so we planted like a whole shade garden, you know, we're first-time homeowners, we were very enthusiastic, we were younger, and we put in a whole shade garden, which we enjoyed for a few years, and then uh, the houses around us started to sell and be torn down, along with all of the, you know, kind of the old shade trees in their, their yards. 
And uh, within a few years, the, the kind of the microclimate in our yard had completely changed, you know, and the whole shade garden that we had planted was dying, you know, the weeds were coming in, uh, the conditions had just changed. And there's nothing really that we could do about it. You know, we tried to transplant some things, move some things, but, but all of those plants were really dependent on their environment. So we can work with nature. You know, we can work within the basic laws of nature. And we can reach some compromises, but we can't really fight with nature. And as modern humans, we can forget that we're also part of this natural world. Our bodies and minds follow the same kinds of universal laws and principles of nature. So we can't just by force of will conjure up the experience that we want. It's our internal climate that determines what's going to sprout, what's going to arise, what's going to grow. And then it's up to us to decide how to respond, how to work with it once it's there within the parameters of what's possible, within the laws of the nature of our own internal climate and dharma. And there are certain key factors that determine what's going to grow and what's going to wither. So in the external environment, you know, very often sunlight is the determining factor. And in the internal environment, it's awareness, really. It's mindfulness that's the linchpin, that's the main determining factor. So this is the first factor of enlightenment, is this quality of awareness and mindfulness, because it's so central. And just as particular plants need a certain amount of sunlight to grow, certain mental states need a certain amount of mindfulness to grow. So there are certain mental states that flourish in the mental darkness of denial, distraction, inattention, oblivion, obsession. But they wither and fade when they're exposed to that light of mindfulness. And those are what we call the hindrances or the defilements, those difficult, painful states of mind that we're all very familiar with by now. And there are other states of mind that flourish in the light of mindfulness, but they go into decline in the shade of inattention, distraction. And those include all of the other factors of enlightenment. Those are the, the mindfulness-loving qualities. And really, all wholesome states of mind are nourished by mindfulness. So depending on the inner climate of our minds, certain mental states will be able to take root and flourish, either those related to suffering or those related to, to growth and wholesomeness. Unfortunately, the inner climate of our minds can be altered. This is the good news, that we can influence conditions inside our minds so that they're more conducive to supporting those mental states that we want to nurture. Not usually in a sudden, dramatic way, although that can also happen. But usually, you know, as in working a garden, it's gradual. It happens over time with patience and perseverance. And that's exactly what we're doing through this practice here. And the Buddha's instructions for doing this were just simply to learn to detect and observe the behavior of the mind. So as we keep saying, it's not to try to wipe out the negative states or not to try to manufacture the positive states, but just simply to observe. 
And you'll keep hearing us, keep hearing us say that over and over again. You know, in general, uh, we have to keep hearing that over and over again. It takes time to sink in. But our task here is just to be mindful of the various experiences that are arising and passing through our minds, which is a good thing because as you may have noticed, there's not a whole lot we can do about them once they're here, once they've arisen. We don't actually have all that much control. The Buddha's instructions have this basic form in terms of relating to to the factors of enlightenment or any kind of mental state, really. But he said that when an enlightenment factor is present, one knows this enlightenment factor is present. Or when an enlightenment factor is absent, one knows this enlightenment factor is not present. And one knows how the enlightenment factor arises and how it comes to be developed and perfected. So this teaching is not about trying to to manufacture these states or to get rid of the unwholesome, but just to learn as much as possible about them, to be clear about them, to know when they're there, to know when they're not there, to know how they arise, to know how they pass, to know what nurtures them and strengthens them, so that we become familiar with them, we become intimate with them, It's the light of our attention that nourishes them. One thing that can be helpful to remember as we start to bring the factors of enlightenment into our practice, into our awareness, is that in general, they're more subtle than the difficult states. And that's a little bit of a generalization. It's not always the case. You might be seeing how um, the hindrances, the defilements, they can get awfully sneaky, especially when things get quiet. They can come in in very subtle ways. And the factors of enlightenment also at times may be very powerful and very uh, clear and obvious. But in general, they're more subtle. And especially kind of early in our practice or when there's a lot going on, a lot of inner turmoil, Um, it can be easy to overlook the factors of enlightenment. You know, we spend a lot of time kind of early in our practice or when there's a lot of drama going on, learning to recognize and work with the difficult states, with the hindrances and the defilements, just because they're so obvious, you know, they're so compelling, that they're the squeaky wheel there that's really catching our attention. So then the quality of our attention gets tuned to that level of experience, kind of the drama, the, the big show. But it's also important to remember to keep an eye out for the more subtle qualities of the factors of enlightenment because they can slip below the radar, you know, if we're not kind of staying tuned to them, if we're not looking out for them. And when the enlightenment factors start to get stronger, um, it's interesting, the subjective experience can actually be that nothing's happening because there's not all that drama going on, especially if we're not used to that experience you know, can feel like nothing's really happening. But it's actually just that we haven't quite yet tuned our attention to the wavelength of the the factors of enlightenment. So the first step in learning about them directly from our experience is just simply remembering to, to detect them, looking for them. And to help with that effort, I'll give a little bit of description now of the different factors. 
And the point here is not just to give you some set of abstract theoretical knowledge. You know, as I was saying today in one group, this isn't a study course. We often present important teachings in these kinds of lists um, because they were used historically. They're a little bit of a mnemonic, you know, to help to, to the information to sink into the gray matter so that we could remember the lists from the time that this was mainly an oral tradition. But the point is really just to, to take this into actual experience and to find how it's real and true in your own mind. And all of these different lists that come from the traditional teachings, they kind of make up a field guide to the mind. You know how we, get, we can get field guides to pretty much anything these days. Uh, my daughter just got one from the library, a field guide to the stars. It has all the constellations in it. Um, my husband is a, a little bit of an amateur naturalist, so when we come up here, he likes to do a lot of hiking, and he's got a special field guide just for all the plants and the birds and things around here. So when we come on retreat, we have a chance to explore the field guide to the mind. All of these different mental factors that make up what we're likely to encounter when we go on this inner journey, inner journey into that inner wilderness. And one of the reasons for gratitude to the, the Buddha and the generations of practitioners that have passed down these teachings is they've, they've passed us this field guide. You know, We don't have to start from scratch compiling a list of everything we might encounter with all of its descriptions. We've got this great knowledge base to start from. So we really want to learn about these states directly. You know, we can hear the teachings about them, but then we want to look and see how do they actually feel? What's really the texture of them in our own minds? So as I describe each of these factors, you might want to, to engage in some of that reflection. You know, maybe keeping a little bit of attention out to listening to the words, but then also looking in uh, to your own mind, reflecting on your own practice and seeing where there's resonance, things that you uh, uh, can identify with, things that you've experienced. Or if it's not something that you've consciously experienced yet, you can kind of make a mental note of its distinguishing features so that you can recognize it when it does appear. And again, you know, whatever doesn't stick in the mind is okay. You know, you'll get what you need to get out of all these lists. So the first in the list of the factors of enlightenment is mindfulness, sati. And we use a lot of different words here to describe this fundamental factor. You know, we might call it uh, mindfulness or awareness or noticing or knowing or noting. And these all point to the same basic quality of mind. It's that primary factor that defines the mental climate, sets up the mental environment. And it's kind of in a class by itself because it really, it balances and it initiates all of the other wholesome factors of mind and all of the other factors of enlightenment. And that's actually why this style of practice that we're doing uh, was developed in this way and why it's often called mindfulness practice because mindfulness is really the key to cultivating the mind. It's the sunlight in that garden of our mind. There's an, there's an example or a metaphor for this that I came across recently. Um, I mentioned my daughter's field guide to the stars. She's a little bit in that phase right now when kids uh, tend to become fascinated you know, with outer space and spaceships and uh, space travel and moon landings and all these things. So I've had a chance recently to uh, kind of uh, refresh my knowledge of like the, the space race and the U US space program and the space shuttle program and all these various things that I haven't 
thought a whole lot in about in a while. But um, one of the interesting things in, in the books that we've been looking at is, um, you know, they've done these experiments out in space to grow plants, you know, to, to see if there's some way to figure out to actually grow, grow our own food out in space, should the day ever come when we need or want to do that. Um, but one of the really interesting things, and you may have heard this, is that um, when you try to grow plants in space in the absence of gravity, the roots don't know which way to go. Have you seen? So they have these wacky pictures of like a plant growing out of a, a pot, and the, the plant goes upwards, but like the roots are just like all over the place. They're just like sticking out at random. You know, they don't know uh, where their ground is. They don't know how to orient themselves. It's really interesting. But so mindfulness is kind of like gravity in this analogy. It's like that grounding force that really helps us to put down the roots, so we can establish the base for everything that's going to grow out of it. And once we have that stable base, you know, the root base, the root ball, and once, once that gets established properly, then it's like everything else just flows naturally. You know, the seed will just naturally sprout. The little seedling will just naturally come out. The flowers will appear. The fruit will grow. Everything will just naturally unfold from, from kind of the innate wisdom of the seed once it has that, that stable base. So mindfulness is like that. It's that fundamental quality that grounds the whole path, the whole practice. You know, the seeds of wisdom and compassion, you know, they're really already there in us. That innate wisdom, that innate potential is already there. But without the mindfulness, it's like the mind kind of does that same thing. It just goes all over the place. It's not stable. And we've been talking about awareness now for about three days. And you've been exploring it directly in your practice for at least that long. Some of you for much longer. But it's so simple, it's so obvious, that really sometimes we just overlook it. You know, we tend to think that there's, really, there's gotta be more to it. You know, it can't just really be this simple. But it's just really that basic, simple quality of just knowing what's happening right in the present moment. So it can be just as simple as just knowing that we're sitting, knowing that we're hearing, knowing that we're feeling a sensation in the body, a breath, a thought passing through the mind. That's really all there is to it. It's just completely uh, automatic and natural function of mind when we remember to be present, when we remember to show up for it. And of course, there are different degrees of mindfulness. You know, it may be more or less continuous. That's one of the things we're really uh, working on here is to make the mindfulness more continuous, more moments strung together or it may be more penetrating or more subtle at various times, depending on the different factors of mind that come in combination with it. But mindfulness itself is just extremely simple and natural, just this faculty of knowing. The key is that it's not an intellectual knowing. It's not related to all that analysis and thought. It's not knowing via the, the, the middleman, the mediator of concepts but just direct knowing, direct experiencing. There's a short teaching from um, Tongpulu Sayada, uh, who is one of, another one of the great Burmese meditation masters from the last century um, that I've just always loved. It's called, What Makes a Meditation? He says, when you know that you're feeling greed, you're no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. If you know that you're angry and feel hatred, 
you're no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. When you know that you're confused, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it's a meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate, that means that you have the understanding that you don't want to meditate. Since you know that you don't want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do. (laughs) So if you're just present, that's all there is to it. It doesn't matter what the experience is. Even this experience, as he says, of knowing that we don't want to meditate, if we know it, guess what? We're meditating. (laughs) So the remaining factors out of this teaching, the remaining six of the seven factors of enlightenment, are divided into two groups. There's one of three energizing or uplifting qualities of mind, and there's one of three calming or tranquilizing qualities of mind, which again makes me think that uh, human human nature probably hasn't changed too much in the last 2,500 years, uh, because the energizing ones come first. (laughs) But there's also a larger message in how this teaching is organized, which comes back to this principle of balance that I was talking about. So it's not just about cultivating these qualities, but really cultivating them in balance, in harmony with each other. So out of a balance of alertness on the one hand and tranquility on the other. And I think we've all um, here around the center always found it uh, uh, amusing and kind of odd and also serendipitous that the the town motto for the town of Barry is tranquil and alert. (laughs) That was kind of a a, a good signal for settling here. So the idea is that, you know, kind of as I was getting at in that initial reflection that I had you do, you know, it's not that we want to just be totally blissed out. You know, that's not the place that insight arises from. Actually, that if, if when we get too euphoric, it's, there's a kind of a disconnect in that. We're not really connecting fully when we're caught up in all that bliss. And on the other hand, we don't want to just get, you know, totally into deep tranquility and calm. And there's also there's also a kind of disconnect in that in which we're not fully experiencing when we're just so chilled out. So we want to find just the right balance between the two, where the mind really becomes receptive to the true nature of experience in its totality and the fullness of it, including both of those sides of the equation. So we can think of this image of a scale or a seesaw when we think about this teaching on the seven factors with mindfulness being the fulcrum, the balancing point, the the suspension. So that's the one that really can't be too strong. Not possible to have too much mindfulness or out of balance mindfulness. We can always use more mindfulness. As Steve might say, uh, more mindfulness is more better. (laughs) But the other six factors, the energizing and the tranquilizing factors, they need to be balanced on each side of the scale Kind of like, you know, I'll take my daughter to the playground sometimes and she's kind of a little thing. You know, she'll get on one side of the, the seesaw and like some big, you know, kid will come and sit on the other side and she's just up in the air and it doesn't work like that. You know, it needs to balance. You need to find that other kid on the playground that's kind of like about the same size. So not tipping too much to one side or the other, not falling into extremes. 
And it's out of that stability, out of that balance, that insight then becomes available, becomes inevitable, really. And as we practice mindfulness, um, there's this kind of magic that both the energizing and the tranquilizing factors get stronger, and they naturally balance out over time so that we're less likely to fall into those extremes. So the three energizing factors are investigation, energy itself, and joy. These are all uplifting qualities of the heart and mind. And we want to uh, come to an understanding, you know, in ourselves again. We use these English terms. We use these words to point to these qualities. But it's really to explore in our own experience. What do they actually feel like? You know, what do they really mean? What do they really point to? So the second factor is this factor of investigation, which just like mindfulness is not an intellectual exercise. It's not an intellectual kind of investigation. So it's not thinking about experience, trying to figure it out. Instead, it's really a drawing near to experience or a diving into experience so that we can more fully feel it, more fully take it in, in all its nuances. And living with a young child, you know, I get daily demonstrations of this quality of investigation because everything's new to her. You know, everything, she has beginner's mind in every moment because she's a beginner. So one thing that I thought of in relation to this is um, just before we came up here, uh, we went blueberry picking which is a big highlight of the summer. The blueberries are in season right now. Some of you might know that up here too. Um, so we took her out to this great place that's uh, not that far away from us out in the country outside DC that's an organic blueberry farm. It's really great. And it's just about an acre, you know, so it's not huge, but it's a pretty, pretty big blueberry patch. And, you know, we go out there with, her, with our baskets, you know, and I'm very clear about the task, you know. There's, there's like thousands, millions of blueberries in the field, and I'm going just right for you know, the big, smooth, blue ones, you know, that's, that's my goal. I'm very clear in my mind. But my daughter, you know, she's not so clear. This isn't so obvious to her. You know, she hasn't uh, settled on this conclusion for herself. So I told her, you know, if she wasn't sure if some of the blueberries were okay in a certain area, she could, she could try one, you know, she could taste one and see, you know, if that clump looked like they were good. And I quickly realized that I needed to uh, refine that guidance a little bit. <laughs> So that she could just try one here and there, um, because it became clear that you know every blueberry was going to get tried, and you know, it's not just because she was hungry and she loves blueberries, although she probably both of those things are are true, but it's just it's like each blueberry is a completely new experience for her. You know, she doesn't bring that assumption to it that oh this one's going to be like that other one that looked the same. You know, there's really that sense of freshness and newness and interest in approaching each each blueberry. <laughs> and she's just as, as fascinated and just as curious about you know, the 200th blueberry as she was about the first blueberry. So I'm reminded of this daily by her. And we, we see this on retreat, too, you know, that it's the quality of our attention that really makes things interesting. You know, when we bring that sense of wonder to our experience, then we find things to wonder at, you know, rather than the other way around. It's the very act of drawing near and really looking with interest that creates the opportunity for interesting details to emerge. It's not that something has to be interesting at the, at the beginning, so then we'll investigate it. It's that if we investigate, then the interest comes. 
And we can see this, probably a lot of you, or most of you have seen this in your experience here, you know, as we're sitting and we're, maybe we're just listening to a sound, or following, that, following the breath, and it's nothing special. You know, for the most part, our experience is really nothing special, either here or, you know, really anywhere else. But if we bring that quality of just attention, respect, interest, then it can, it can become fascinating at moments, just the most mundane things. So what we mean by investigation is this mental movement of drawing nearer to our experience and becoming more intimate with it. The next energizing factor is energy itself, or effort, virya. And we can think of this as the ability to stand firm in the face of whatever arises in our experience. And a really good example of this is the Buddha on the night of his enlightenment, which we have uh, his mudra here, touching the earth from that night. You know, he was, in the, the legend it said, he was attacked by the armies of Mara, which is basically every difficult experience that human beings can possibly have, you know, fear, grief, self-doubt, everything, craving. But he just kept his seat. That was his strength, his energy, his effort that he made. He just kept his seat. He didn't fight, he didn't struggle. He just touched the ground and made this assertion that I'm not moving, you know, that right here, right here in the seat, this is where I'm staying. So it's that courage to face whatever arises not attacking it, but also not retreating, just simply facing it. And that's a quality that all of, here, all of us here are mobilizing, that we're all capable of. And over time, we learn more and more to make a balanced effort. You know, I know this is something that a lot of you here are uh, exploring and working with. Where's the balance of effort? In the beginning, you know, we tend to push too hard, and then we get exhausted or we push not enough, and then we don't really connect. So right effort is gentle but persistent. You know, it doesn't really take that much effort to just meet one moment, to just connect with one moment. But we have to mobilize that effort over and over and over, moment by moment by moment. You can think of that example of picking the blueberries again. You know, if we grab them too hard, <laughs> you know, we end up with blueberry jelly in our hands. You know? On the other hand, if we don't grab it hard enough, it's not going to come off of the bush. So just to make that little, you know, that gentle but firm connection with the present moment, with the present experience, and then with the next one, and the next one, and the next one. The last of the energizing factors is joy, which is a very important part of this path that can often be overlooked. You know, we can... Uh, the Vipassana yogis, you know, we have kind of a, a reputation for being very serious. You know, things here can get very serious. But actually, you know, joy is really an essential part of this path and also a natural result of it. At some point, you know, that joy starts to emerge in our practice and you may have gotten a taste of this. But the kind of joy that we mean here is spiritual joy, not sensual or sensory joy. So it's not the kind of uh, enjoyment that comes from pleasant experience, whether it's physical or mental. It's the joy that again comes out of that intimacy with experience, from drawing near, from being close, from being right in the flow of life. It's the joy of feeling the richness of being alive, 
like the young child in the blueberry patch. And it can manifest as a keen interest in what we're observing, you know, really just getting fascinated. So for that reason, sometimes it's called rapture. You might hear that term for it. It's rapture in the sense of being wrapped, you know, that sense of being enthralled, really drawn in and captivated. It can manifest as a sense of lightness and comfort in the body. Uh, sometimes we might even get goosebumps or a real sense of exhilaration, uplifting energy. And these are all aspects of this kind of spiritual joy. And it's a joy that we don't need to worry about. You know, we can sometimes kind of get the idea that, that pleasure is an enemy in this practice. Um, that it always has to come with some kind of unwholesome attachment or craving, and that's not always the case. So when this kind of spiritual joy comes, it's actually very healthy and very wholesome and helps to sustain us in this hard work that we're doing. So these three factors together of investigation and energy and joy help to uplift the mind help to bring that energy into our practice and sustain us. And we might try to mobilize them, you know, at those times when we recognize that the mind's a little sluggish or maybe we're feeling a little depressed. Um, we could make, you know, some effort to use skillful means to try to uh, boost them a little bit. You know, trying to arouse a sense of curiosity or wonder, you know, finding some aspect of our experience that we can get a little bit interested in, bring that element of investigation into. We can use tools like the noting, the mental noting. You know, for some people that can be very helpful to kind of give the mind a little bit more to do, uh, raise the energy a little bit. Um, we can work on the continuity of our practice, from the sitting to the walking to the sitting to meals and in, into everything that we do, which allows the mind a chance to really draw near and to start to tap into that sense of joy and being in the flow of life. So if conditions are favorable, you know, there are various ways that we might be able to arouse the energizing factors a little bit more if we feel that they're needed. But again, this is not to push, you know, because if the conditions aren't right, then they're not going to arise. But we can see, where the, see how much leeway we have, you know, within the laws of kind of our inner environment at any given time. And at times there'll be a little room to work with those. After the energizing factors come the tranquilizing factors. So these are the ones of calm, concentration, and equanimity. And tranquility is the ability really just to rest in the present moment, to really feel at ease in the present moment. So not leaning forward into the future, not leaning back into the past, not leaning toward any particular element of the present moment, but just really settling into what's happening with a deep sense of relaxation. And when tranquility becomes present, then our whole system just kind of settles and calms down. And there are times when we can feel this. When calm is present in the mind, then the body also calms down. When tranquility becomes very strong, you know, we can get that feeling like, gee, why was this ever a problem just sitting here? You know, this is, this is fine, you know, what's the problem? We can get that sense of just, it's okay. It's okay to just be here now. 
we may get through the sitting period and be surprised when the, the bell rings, you know, not having been anticipating it and not having been waiting for it. Everything just seems to, to calm down and relax. And this can come for longer periods or can, may also at times just come for short periods, even just a few moments of feeling that kind of okayness and settledness and relaxation. A little bit of a pause in the storm when we feel like we can just take a breath and just be there with it. So it's important to recognize these moments too, to be aware of those times when things do settle, when things do calm down. And some of you are starting to report periods of this at this point in the retreat. The next uh, tranquilizing factor is the one of concentration. And this is the ability of the mind to settle and focus on what we're noticing. Really giving an experience our full attention, really connecting with it. And this doesn't necessarily mean staying with just one particular experience for a prolonged time. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean just following the breath for an entire sitting. It just really means being focused and present with whatever experience we're attending to. And that could be changing experiences. You know, the, the object of our concentration uh, could be changing from moment to moment to moment, but still that quality of focus and connection is there. There's a feeling of collectedness, composure, stillness with it, a sense of lack of distraction. So the wandering mind calms down a little bit. and We stop feeling that constant pull into distractions, into thinking. When concentration gets stronger, that's when we tend to really feel like we're meditating. It's this quality of concentration that tends to give us kind of that really satisfying feeling that we like of, okay, now I'm really meditating. It's that sense of collectedness, that sense of focus. And at times it may feel like everything's just really clicking, like we're really in the zone. You know, there's not that struggle to keep connecting. There's a kind of momentum that comes to the concentration, which is really helpful. And we may actually feel like we've shifted into just a completely different gear, like the consciousness has really altered. So we tend to know at those times that something really unusual is happening, that we've kind of moved beyond the ordinary level of concentration. But in every moment that we're mindful, concentration is also really there, even if it doesn't have such a pronounced and uh, clear effect. The concentration has to be there or else we wouldn't be able to be present with what was happening. So even if you don't feel particularly concentrated at this point, I can assure you that you are far more concentrated than when you arrived. And when the end of the retreat comes, you will really feel the shift that's happened. So concentration is an important part of what we're cultivating here. It's an important quality of mind, which is why it's on this list of enlightenment factors. But it's also important to remember that it's only one of the factors. So we don't want to fall into kind of defining our whole practice in terms of just this one quality of mind. It's just one part of the equation, an important one, but just one part. And last but not least in this list is equanimity, this great quality of equanimity that we've been talking about and we'll be continuing to talk about from different angles throughout this retreat because of this really pivotal steadying role that it plays in the process of insight. As an enlightenment factor, equanimity can be thought of 
as the ability of the mind to remain steady and balanced and non-reactive in the face of whatever's arising. So not getting excited about experiences that are really pleasant or really unpleasant. And also not just spacing out during experiences that are very neutral and kind of not too interesting or stimulating. But it's this evenness of mind that just shows up for every experience with equal attention, with equal respect, with equal interest. It's this even-handedness of mind. Equanimity was praised very highly by the Buddha as one of the highest kinds of happiness because it brings such deep peace. So it brings a sense of a really deep and unshakable sense of stability and grounding with our experience, whatever it may be. And often we notice this on retreat when we see ourselves like not having a, a habitual reaction that we're expecting. And some of you have started to comment on this too, you know. Um, there might be something on previous retreats or just in your life that you kind of know really tends to push your buttons. And then it comes up either in a sitting or in some interaction here and that reaction doesn't happen. The mind just stays still. It just stays balanced in the face of that stimulus that normally would evoke some kind of reaction, some kind of rise. So that's the kind of thing that tends to give us a clue that this quality of equanimity is growing. So these three tranquilizing qualities, the the calm and the concentration and the equanimity, they help to quiet and steady the mind. And as with the energizing factors, these are qualities that we can experiment a little bit with, uh, working with skillful means when it seems like it might be helpful to try to arouse them a little bit when the mind is agitated, when we feel overexcited, overstimulated. And one of the things that really helps with this is slowing down on retreat. You know, we're at the point now where you're already starting to slow down, and we can give even more uh, conscious attention to this really slowing down to give the system a chance to settle, give the body a chance to settle, give the mind a chance to settle along with it. There can be times, as we've spoken spoken about, when it's helpful to stabilize the attention on the breath or whatever we're using as our anchor in the meditation. Uh, That's a calming practice that will help to quiet the mind, to uh, focus the mind, to build concentration. And we can also um, reflect a little bit on this quality of equanimity. You know, when when we feel like we're getting reactive, when we feel like we're getting triggered by things, um, we can incline the mind towards equanimity and try to put things back in perspective. But actually, there's nothing that we really need to do besides being mindful. You know, so I've given you this whole list here, but there's actually only one thing out of it that you need to remember, which is that thing we keep talking about which is awareness and mindfulness. All of these other factors will naturally arise as a result of mindfulness. And it's interesting to see that there's this natural pattern of the mind, um, that there's a certain amount of energy that we need to muster before we can actually relax. It's a little bit counterintuitive. But our first task here in retreat often, for many of us, is to arouse that kind of launching energy to get ourselves into, into the flow. And that has to kind of happen before we can then relax and really settle into the, the tranquilizing factors.
So that's the basic principle behind how these qualities of mind operate. That really one tends to lead to the next down the line. So when we're mindful, we start to see more of our experience. We just start to notice more of what's going on, which very organically tends to arouse this quality of investigation because we just get curious. We start seeing more. We start to get more interested in, well, what else is there? Can I look deeper? And as we make that effort then to to get closer to our experience, to look deeper, that will arouse energy. So that also tends to follow naturally. And then from making that connection, from investigating, from the the rise in energy, then very naturally there starts to be a sense of joy out of engaging with experience and starting to really connect with it. And when we have that kind of spiritual joy, that pleasure that comes from, from the connection, then we can relax. You know, it's like that's the, the, the prerequisite for really being able to relax into the practice. And when we're relaxed, when we're joyful, uh, when we're alert, then we can start to really work with the mind in terms of the concentration, to really direct it in a powerful way, in a continuous way. So that tends to follow on. And then in the wake of that, really connecting with the present moment, with joy, with interest, with focus, out of all that comes this deep balance of heart and mind of equanimity, which is where these factors all lead. So there is that kind of lawfulness to it. Um, But that doesn't mean that that's necessarily how we'll always experience it. There may be times when we kind of see that progression happening or little bits and pieces of it. But there may also be times when one or another uh, elements of it is more obvious. So there may be times when maybe just the joy out of that equation becomes most obvious, or maybe just the tranquility or different pieces of it. So it's not that we need to see it unfolding in that way, although that's the basic process that's happening. It's something, uh, it's slightly ironic that these enlightenment factors are actually a bit of an acquired taste for most of us. You know, in in the society that we live in, we really tend to be trained from childhood to have a taste for excitement and for drama and for stimulation and lots of it. You know, the message that we get from all around us is that that's the way to find happiness. That's the way to find Satisfaction in life is just to get more and more and more. To be, in a way, constantly excited is really the message that we hear. So the more subtle happiness of peace and freedom is not actually where most of us are used to looking for a sense of happiness and satisfaction in life. It may not even be how we're used to thinking about happiness or what it is. But as we sit and we walk, and we're quiet and we pay attention, then it starts to dawn on us that this kind of stable, balanced happiness that comes with the cultivation of the factors of enlightenment, that comes with wisdom and insight, is actually far superior you know, to that kind of frantic pleasure and excitement that comes from just this constant pursuit of what we want or what we think we want and the constant flight from pain and all of the agitation that that involves. 
And as with everything else in this practice, that's not an intellectual understanding. You know, it would be great if we could just hear the teaching, you know, accept that as true, and then actually experience it. But it doesn't work that way. Insight is not a decision. It's not an opinion. It's not a view. Though it may start out that way. You know, for all of us, we start off with the ideas, you know, with the intellectual understanding. But what we're working to arrive at is the visceral knowledge, to really know this in our bones, to have really seen it face to face for ourselves, from our own direct experience, through our own hard-won wisdom. And over the long run, it's this insight, this wisdom, that really dramatically transforms the way that we relate to our lives, the way that we relate to ourselves, and all of the other beings that we interact with. And thousands and millions of people over the course of millennia have cultivated these qualities of mind, just as we're doing here, and learned to suffer less as a result. And we have absolute confidence that every one of you here can do this too. We wouldn't be up here doing this if we didn't. We wouldn't bother. And all the staff and all the people that support the center, they wouldn't bother if they didn't also have that confidence. And even the Buddha you know, debated whether it was worth his while, but he decided that it was to share this path with us because we could understand there were those of us with little dust in our eyes that could hear this message and benefit. And on some level, whether you realize it or not, you also wouldn't be here if you didn't have confidence in this if at some level you didn't have confidence in your ability to walk this path and to realize these teachings. So let's sit for a minute. This is a poem from Wendell Berry. Horseback on Sunday morning, harvest over. We taste persimmon and wild grape, sharp sweet of summer's end. In time's maze over the fall fields, we name names that went west from here, names that rest on graves. We open a persimmon seed to find the tree that stands in promise pale in the seed's marrow. Geese appear high over us, pass, and the sky closes. Abandon, as in love or sleep, holds them to their way. Clear in the ancient faith, what we need is here. And we pray, not for new earth or heaven, but to be quiet in heart and an eye clear. What we need is here.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.